Before I get into my stray, stray thoughts for the evening, I thought that I'd uh, spend, we'd spend a few minutes um, speaking to any questions that you might have about what you noticed in your practice tonight or any of the, any of the teachings. Uh, please feel free. And Noemi will walk around with the mic if, if you have a comment or question. And as I always say, uh, your question or comment or description will likely be of some benefit to someone else in the room. So part of our practice of generosity as well. So anybody have any questions? Madison, careful. Thanks. Hi, Howie. Um, it wasn't exactly tonight, but it happens a lot that through the years you've taught me the term multiple hindrance attack. And so I'm well aware of when I'm having a multiple hindrance attack. T- tonight it was a little bit at the beginning of the set of stomach pains and itching, and I thought, ah. Oh, well, stomach pain is up. not a hindrance, that's pain. Okay. Well, that hindrance is the mental reaction to the physical pain. Well, that wasn't so good either. But, <laughs> but okay. I'm, so I'm able to spot it and name it, but I find that then I kind of go blank and I don't have any particular things I do, like even a deep breath or any of that. So I wondered if... Well, what's happening after you spot it and name it? What happens next to whatever it is that you've been naming and spotting? Uh, everything stops, yeah. It goes kind of quiet. Okay, so there's a cessation of whatever your hindrance was. Momentarily, yeah. yeah. Like, oh, this is what it is. So there's a little bit of calming, but I wondered if there was anything else <laughs> to be done. You just experience the Dharma. That everything that has the nature to arise has the nature to fade away. So whatever hindrances, what feeds the hindrances, the state of aversion or desire is the is the lack of recognition of it. Once it's recognized, it's as though the 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 you've got this um, this thick cloud of of moisture that's all it's it seems really persistent. This it's just built up, and all of a sudden the sun comes out. And the heat of the sun begins to evaporate that cloud formation. That's, that is, you could say, the same as when attention meets some kind of mental state that has, up till that point, gone unnoticed. And what you've probably been noticing is not even noticing. What you've been carried away in is the narrative associated with whatever the hindrance is, which is, I can't stand this. I'm, I'm going to, this is going to lead to, a, we'll start catastrophizing, we'll start worrying, we'll get frustrated, you'll get exhausted, you'll start having doubt about, just as, we've, as we always describe. Once you notice, oh, this is a multiple hindrance attack, there's, it's as though the light is just, is just uh, penetrating that thick cloud. It just has no, it has no power to withstand the heat. So, it's good news. The other thing that it's important to notice about the evaporating hindrance is it will re-arise. So, 
and you just keep meeting it and see everything is changing condition. Once you know that everything is a changing condition, then it's uh, then it, you don't have to fight with it. It, it self liberates. But you have to just like that sign in Las Vegas that Jack Cornfield speaks about. You must be present to win. You must be present to that hindrance for it to evaporate. Please. Hello. Um, I think my question is very related. So I think um, I struggle with back pain when I'm meditating. Mm. And I think there are days when like your sort of posture or like, you know, your physical condition is just not doing very well. Yes. And I think like, so you sort of, if you're aware of that, you anticipate that your meditation is going to be awful and then which makes you not want to deal with it. And I was wondering like how, what, what a like, good recommendation would be here to be present but not overwhelmed by your physical condition? How can I become better right. at it? So it's really, and thank you so much for the question. It's really important right from the get-go to, to differentiate between the back pain and the anticipation of it. The anticipation of it is just a mental, it's just a thought as you describe. And Yet, with, with the anticipation, with the thought of anticipation, there is often a contraction that comes with it. There's a worry, there's fear. And that sometimes gets kind of fused with the physical pain and then it exacerbates it. So it's really important that you learn to recognize the mental state and not immediately conflate it with the pain. And see what happens. Just know, become the expert of anticipation. Just oh, this is what anticipation is, and then see how anticipation comes and goes. And and then once the pain arrives, once the once you show up, and it's never exactly how you imagined it anyway. This life isn't like we imagined it. So uh, the idea of something and the reality are very different. But when you do sit, and some kind of physical discomfort shows up. There's an art to working with discomfort, and the typical thing is to is to uh, immediately react with some kind of ah oh, or fear or reactivity. Again, then that pain and suffering, mental suffering, get very fused. So you want to be able to distinguish between the pain and the suffering, and and. First, you want to, as a way of meeting the pain, you want to feel its unpleasant quality. Because if you're feeling its unpleasant quality, it's less likely to, you're not likely to be feeding the reaction to it. So right now, do you have any physical pain? It's okay, too bad. No, I mean, it's good. It's good, but it's too bad we can't work with it on this one. Right, so it is in- inevitable that it will fade away and it will come back. Things come back, and that's part of the part of our craving mind wants things to go away. Part of our aversive mind wants things to go away, and we have this wonderful joy, the cessation of something, and we love when it goes away, but we don't like when it comes back. But if you understand that. Whatever arises, fades away, and reappears, time without end, then we stop suffering about it so much. But once it's there, 
we want to first, before we go right into our usual habit of, of strategizing, trying to get away from it, try to change our posture, first we just take in that unpleasantness. And we at least get a sense that I can feel unpleasant and, and have my mind remain balanced and not so reactive. And just to know that is it produces a lot of confidence. Yeah, I can, I can feel that. And in fact, I'm not suffering at all. You want to try that. If you notice, however, that you're not able to actually find that balance with the pain, and you notice that you're starting to get tighter and tighter and more reactive or more fearful, at that point, it's not useful to stay with that sensation anymore. You either turn toward that reaction that's happening, kind of calibrate your, your attitude and your, your mental state, or you make a change in your posture, one that's, uh, that gives you a little relief. If you know you're going to will be okay, even if you don't move and it's painful and you, you, you don't want to move, then sometimes just to give your mind a little break, you shift your attention to something in your body that's more comfortable. You maintain the same posture, but notice that there may be some places in your body that aren't so, so uncomfortable. And, and it's nice to know that two things can be happening at the same time and they're not all, it's not all, all terrible. Anyway, that may be more answer than you wanted, but that's what you got. Thanks for the question. So I think, Mary, if you want to turn this on, if you don't mind, thank you. I actually think that given the, the questions this evening, it might just be useful to, rem, to remember what we're actually practicing here. We're practicing sometimes called mindfulness. But we're actually practicing a whole system that emerged from a sutra, from a teaching offered by the Buddha called the Maha Satipatthana Sutra. And Satipatthana means, the Sati means bear attention, but Patana means to, that attention spring, springs forth to connect with an object and it's a, it's a keen observing power that connects with whatever is presenting itself. And the Satipatthana Sutra contains within it uh, four domains that we want to spring toward with a keen observing power. And the first one, the one that we, that we have to learn to navigate, if we don't learn to navigate this first foundation of mindfulness, our, the reactive mind will then proliferate and you'll just end up in the, in the second and the third foundations of mindfulness and you'll just be mucking around in a lot of, um, a lot of reactivity. That first foundation of mindfulness, what is it? Mindfulness directed to the body. The Buddha said that there's one thing if cultivated 
that leads to a strong sense of urgency, a calm abiding, a pleasant dwelling in this very, li- in this very life, uh, liberation and, the, and fruition. There's one thing. And what is that one thing? Mindfulness directed to the body. It is the ground of everything. Because once you put your mind in your body, the body is calm, the mind is calm, the the fetters, the tendencies of mind are quieted, all the grasping and condemning, things smooth out. And why is this so essential? Is because human beings are prone just by conditioning to to experience a charge of reactivity when they actually feel their body a little bit. They feel a charge that every experience that we have in our body, every sensation, every sight, every smell, every taste, even every thought comes accompanied with, a, with some kind of feeling tone. It's either pleasant and believe it or not, even pleasant produces a little bit of a charge. Unpleasant, or neither pleasant or unpleasant. Now, the pleasant is usually followed by a charge of, I like this. Liking produces a charge. It's like, I like it. Something in us goes like this, I like it. And if we were able to notice the charge of pleasant, the charge of liking, then then that liking comes, the pleasant comes, the pleasant goes. But if, if we're not attentive to our body, experiencing the, the valence of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, if we're unaware of it, it immediately moves from liking to wanting, wanting to becoming. Pretty soon our mind is, is in a state of seeking, trying to, it's going to, it, it moves into a kind of an effusion of, of mental commentary and plans and figuring out and, and it moves into time and pretty soon we've completely become disembodied. We've lost our orientation to the only place that life actually is, which is us sitting here right now. Everything else is imaginary, you know that. Isn't it amazing? That everything other than what's entering our sense doors, our doors of perception, eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, everything other than what's actually here, entering moment by moment, is of the past or of the imagined future. It's not here. It's not real. It has only um, it has only a um, it, it's part of our, a story, a collection of memories that's quite fantastic that we can think of things and in the present and call it past and throw it somewhere behind us, but there's really nothing there. And the same with the thoughts in the present of, that we call future and throw them somewhere in front of us. Those of you who sat with me over the years know that I got very turned on many years ago when I studied uh, cross-cultural language and, they, and there was this culture, I think in South America, that had a completely different 
language structure and their concept of time was exactly backwards. They saw the past in front of them because you can see it and the future behind you because you can't see it. Just try that on for a minute. But in in any case, these are imaginary. So there's only this. We lose this, then we just, we enter into imaginary time. And then trying to to manage the world from a place of being disembodied. The, The unpleasant the, the dislike of the pain in your stomach, for example, it immediately goes into, into catastrophizing, worrying. I have a, a person that I, that I mentor who has uh, heart issues. And the heart issues produce a, un, a little unsettling feeling. So you would say that that's accompanied by what we call unpleasant Vedana. But when that, the moment he has this unpleasant Vedana, it very quickly uh, proliferates into worry. And, and then, if he then has to call the doctor, he, he goes into the, what do they call it, the white coat syndrome, where immediately his blood pressure rises. And, and then he spends, that's very unpleasant, doesn't know how to accommodate that. And that has a physical corollary too, doesn't know how to accommodate that. So then he, he spends hours anticipating the next time he has to go to the doctor. And all that worrying, like I said at the beginning tonight, now that you've seen that all your worrying is such an unlucrative occupation, find a better job. The better job is putting our mind in, back in our body and knowing this is worry. Put it to good use. Study the worry. Study what are you, what's the worry, what's the engine of this worry. Uh, once we've actually felt it, then we can then we can actually reflect on it a little bit. And so you can use your thinking mind. But when you use your thinking mind from a place of balance, from a place of embodiment, then I can say, oh, I'm just afraid of, of dying. Or uh, I'm trying to control something that's uncontrollable. And whatever it is, but as long as I'm disembodied and I'm just living in that little virtual freak out about going to the doctor or whatever it is that I'm anticipating and worrying about, I'm, I wander a long time confused because I'm just not in my body. And I think that this is a, this is a real syndrome of our, of our times as one of the a teacher named Reggie Ray. I happen to have this with me tonight. He says, as we've seen, our modern disembodiment means that people live largely within a conceptual world of their own making, attempting to handle experiences by fitting them into a continuous conceptual narrative of their I or ego. The more disembodied we are, the more strident and compulsive this incessant narrative becomes. 
In addition, the more disembodied we are, the more isolated and disconnected we are, not just from our emotions, but from the feeling of connection with other people and the larger world. Our disconnection and isolation are reflected in the high degree of personalism. Everything is about me, narcissism. The individualism, I am a free agent with no inherent ties or obligation to anyone or anything found in modern societies. The personalism and individualism that mark modern people is, in other words, a direct function of their disembodiment. It appears to be true that emotions seem especially overwhelming and frightening to us modern people because of our overly disembodied individualistic and personalistic understanding of them. Just as as an aside, I'll read the rest of this, even though I want to get back to the foundations of mindfulness. Maladoma Somme, uh, a teacher, speaks of emotions within a different, more transcendent frame of reference. Maladoma says that when someone in his village is taken over by a strong emotion, the entire village attends to that person. The reason is that for the Dagara people of Maladoma's homeland, that's in Africa, strong emotion is never about just one person alone, but rather the village community itself. In his or her highly charged emotional state, a certain person is understood to be giving birth to something that the entire village needs to know and needs to address. So clearly with our disembodiment and the internal dialogue that takes place and with our individualism, we're pretty much spinning out and feeling all alone with our emotions and not handling them. We're, we're t- really quite lousy. Um, we're great at thinking about our emotions. We're lousy at feeling them. So the mindfulness directed to the body both in, invi- initiates that sense of, of harmony of mind and body. Then we start to be able to attune to the pleasant, the unpleasant, neutral. And if you're able to learn to accommodate the the general valence of what's going on, it tends to not proliferate as much into strong emotion or into strong reactivity. If, on the other hand, you, you are able to connect with your body, get used to the feelings, or if you can't connect with your body and you do end up while you're sitting, you know, we're all conditioned to go off a little bit. If you do go off a little bit into a, into a strong emotional reaction, then it is... Imp- okay, I just lost the sound. No, it, it, it went and then it came. Okay, thank you. Then it, there's an art to learning how to actually come out, notice that there's a narrative or a story connected to the emotion that we're experiencing, what we're saying to ourselves, but we expand beyond that story to experience the emotion, to experience what we experience as analogous to weather, to internal weather, changing conditions like the weather. And in the in the knowing of the weather, uh, we also um, 
we also at the same time as experiencing whatever state we're experiencing and emotions include states of the heart you know sad happy but also states of mind like calm agitation peaceful spacious whatever it is that's felt even if we're feeling it even if we're it's not just noticing the emotion what we're doing at the same time as we're actually settling our mind back into our body. We're, we're both practicing the first and the third foundation of mindfulness at the same time, mindfulness of mind and the state of mind. But by experiencing it, we're including the body. And you include the body, then everything becomes more workable. And then mixing our attention with uh, attention Sorry, I'm getting a little distracted by all the movement. The alchemy of attention, mixing with our body, mixing with our mental states, staying with that over and over enhances. It's like rubbing our attention against these objects of the body and feelings and emotions. It has the effect over time of creating a kind of continuity of attention that brightens the mind. And when our mind is bright and we actually experience this flow of changing emotions and changing sensations and changing feeling tones, then we start to realize uh, what we call dharmas. We start to realize that, yeah, that a lot of this is really unpleasant. This is part of life. And we start to recognize that there's a difference between the, the, the dukkha, the, the, uh, the things that are hard to bear, and the mental reactions to them. And we see that the mental reactions are what turns pain into suffering. And by attending to these mental reactions, we start to experience the third, uh, uh, the third noble truth, that there's a cessation to the suffering. I may have lots of pain, but the suffering part is very optional. And once we know that, we start to understand that there's a, there's a path here. There's a path that we walk ourselves in our moment-to-moment experience that can, just by putting our mind in our body and our body in our mind, we can actually come to the end of so much stressing about our life. And with the cessation of stress, there's a great sense of freedom. And any moment of freedom, any moment of mindfulness, is a moment that is lessening, it's deconditioning the power of worry, of aversion, of grasping, of doubt, of fear. All of it is erased in a way through moment-to-moment mindful attention. So we can really underestimate the power of this. And, but it's not just something you do to, to get along a little better in your life. It really can lead to a, a heart's release and a lot of and a profound wisdom so that, that worrying is lessened. Planning is just noticed as planning. You don't live in the dreams of where you're going or where you've been. You, you're, you find your home here. You know, I, I, I quote a lot from Nisargadot where he says, if you, if you 
if you keep your mind um, momentarily, but then continuously free of its usual preoccupations, you'll see that it, your mind quiets. Quiets, quiet, like I said last week, it's, you just die into life. And you just let yourself be right where you are. He says, if you don't disturb that quiet and you stay in it, you'll see that it's permeated with light and love. Uh, and once you've, once you've tasted that, you, you, you won't be the same person again. Your mind will still break that peace, obliterate that vision, but it's bound to return if the effort is sustained until, until your life becomes really concentrated in real time. Stop seeking elsewhere. So this is four foundations of mindfulness. Mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of feeling or feeling tones. Mindfulness emotion. What? Is the second foundation really the Vedana? Vedana. That's right. Pleasant, unpleasant, neither pleasant or unpleasant. And the third foundation is mindfulness of mind. And the, the and generally focuses on whether your mind is in a state of openness, whether it's in a state of greed or grasping. So here's, take this one with you. It's very portable. If it's in a state of greed or grasping, your, your mind is in a state of trying to make something happen. You ever notice that when you're meditating? Boy, it down already. That's greed in the mind. It is a cause of tension. Noticing when the mind is aversive, uh, is resisting what's happening. That's aversion in the mind. That's, that's what's called uh, hatred, just in the most mild sense. Grasping, aversion, and then delusion. Are you sitting and just lost in your, lost in your narrative about, uh, about yourself? That's delusion in the mind. You've fallen into a case of mistaken identity. I think there's a lot going on tonight. It has unpleasant Vedana. Let me just feel that. And didn't quite catch the, un- the unpleasant Vedana in its first brush, so I felt a little bit of aversion. A little bit of unsettled. Once I feel that, though, it's very workable. When that goes unrecognized, then I'm just, there's this kind of background angst. But then I feel that background angst, and it's workable. Here we are. I think that's it. Anyway. Thanks for listening. Let's just take a few moments as I try to remember each week to consider that there that is that there are great blessings in being together and learning the Dharma the way directly, immediately, and the support that we offer each other. And it's 
highly likely that there's been some goodness, some blessings, some merit, some fruits, some benefits to our, our time together. And we realize in the quiet that we are connected to life right where it's connecting with us and that we're connected to all things and all beings. And so it's easy from this point of union to, to share the blessings of our practice with a wish it's naturally overflowing and radiating toward all beings. That, that same wish that we have for ourselves that all beings can know greater happiness and peace and the causes of happiness and peace. That all beings can have less suffering and the causes of suffering. I wish that all beings can recognize this sense of immediacy, this sacred happiness, unshakable peace, and never be apart from it. And a deep wish that all beings can grow in balance, serenity, peace, able to accommodate the pleasant, the unpleasant, the neither pleasant or unpleasant, things, people, situations, near and afar. And a deep wish that our practice today and every day of our life be dedicated to the welfare and benefit of all. May all beings be touched by our life and our awakening. Thanks for your presence. Thanks for your generosity. And see you next time.